Well, at this time, let's turn in our Bibles to the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's holy word. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Like an apple tree among the trees of the woods, so is my beloved among the sons. I sat down in his shade with great delight, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins. Refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking God's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to the Song of Solomon, chapter 2, as we focus our attention upon verse 1. Song of Solomon, chapter 2, and verse 1. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. There has been some discussion among commentators over the years as to who exactly is speaking in this first verse of Song of Solomon chapter 2. Some would say, that the bride or the Shulamite continues her speech from the end of chapter 1. You'll notice that in verses 16 and 17, at least in your pew Bible, that the statements in those verses are preceded by a heading that's not from the Hebrew text, but just uh, in an effort on their part to try to help us to identify this as the Shulamite who is speaking. Behold, you are handsome, my beloved, yes, pleasant. Also, our bed is green, the beams of our houses are cedar, and our rafters of fir. So you can see that the Shulamite speaks up until verse 17. Then you can see that starting in verse 2, again, if you're using the the Pew Bible, you'll notice that they identify that verse 2 is the beloved the bridegroom, even the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, like a lily among thorns, so is my love, that is my beloved bride, among the daughters. So on the front end of our text in verse 1, you have a speech or a statement by the Shulamite, the bride, and on the back end you have a statement by the bridegroom. And the question is, Who's speaking in verse 1? Who is speaking 
in verse 1. Who is it that says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys? Is it the Shulamite, the bride, the beloved wife of the king? Is she continuing what she was saying in verse 17 about the beams of our houses being cedar and our rafters being a fir, and now she's declaring her own beauty? Or is it the case that what we find in verse 1 is connected to what follows in verse 2? And it's the Lord Jesus Christ, the royal bridegroom, who says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. And among Jewish interpreters, uh, oftentimes they would attribute verse 1 to the Shulamite. And in Christian circles, especially in the early church and on through the Reformation, there was a tendency to identify these as the voice of the beloved, of the bridegroom, of the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps you're familiar with that second view. I think it's undoubtedly the predominant view among Christians today, although our Pew Bible, uh, the New King James, takes a different perspective. But predominantly, people view it as the words of Christ. And I think there's good reason to adopt that perspective and to interpret and expound and apply this text as not the words of the Shulamite concerning herself, but the words of the Lord Jesus Christ declaring His own beauty and glory and delightfulness in this text. And quite simply stated, I think the reason we we should be confident in that perspective is that verse 1 flows into verse 2 far more obviously and clearly in terms of its content and its theme than verse 17 of the previous chapter flows into chapter 2, verse 1. It's very clear that it would be a stretch to say that the beams of our houses are cedar and our rafters are of fir, I am the rose of Sharon, that that there's a stronger connection between those statements. It would be a big stretch to say that that it's stronger in that connection than to say, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns, so is my beloved among the daughters. It seems quite clear that Jesus in verse 1 is declaring Himself to be this beautiful flower or multiple examples of beautiful flowers, the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. And then in verse 2, He's saying that His bride reflects His beauty, His glory, His character. He is the lily of the valleys. She is like a lily. He is the the model, the pattern to which she is gradually conformed. I am the lily of the valleys transitions quite easily into like a lily among thorns, so is my love among the daughters. Highlighting the contrast of the Christ-like bride and the world that surrounds her. And we'll see something of that, God willing, this evening. But you can see that the the far stronger, and I would say even conclusive case, is that verse 1 is the Lord Jesus Christ, the royal bridegroom, speaking. And in fact, you see this confirmed in the very names that are given in this book of the Bible to the bridegroom and the bride. Recall that 
the name of the bridegroom is, of course, the, the author of the book itself, Solomon. And the name that he gives to the bride is Shulamit. It's just the male form of peace with the female form of peace. They have the same name. Again, highlighting the symbolic character here. They have the same name. One is in the male, the other is in the female. But it's Solomon, Shulamit. It's the same name. It's the same character. Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace. And His people, by extension, by conformity, by sanctification, are men and women of peace. Peacemakers and children of God. So there's the logic and the flow of the text. But let's dive in to verse 1 as a gracious declaration of the Lord Jesus Christ concerning Himself. Now the first thing we see in this verse is His gracious intent. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Notice His gracious intent. At first glance, when we encounter this bridegroom speaking of His own glory, His own delightfulness, declaring and and really commending Himself, we might begin, under normal circumstances, to question His motives. Why is He drawing attention to Himself? But of course, we know from the rest of Scripture that the reason that the Lord Jesus Christ is constantly commending Himself to those who read the Bible, to those who hear His Gospel, and particularly to those who are His own chosen people, He commends Himself in order to woo a people unto Himself, to woo His bride, to draw and gather His people for their benefit. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And when He comes into the world, part of the means and mechanism by which He saves sinners is to declare who He is. That He is unto all who would believe their wisdom from God, their righteousness, their sanctification, their redemption. He declares unto them who He is for them. To save them. To bless them. To gather them. And give them eternal life. And so here, He's commending Himself in such a way, I mean, in in some sense... He has every right as the eternal God to commend Himself. He has every right to declare His glory simply for the purpose of declaring His glory. That is the case. But it's very clear in this context that the bridegroom is commending Himself to His bride for her benefit, to woo her, even as He did in the previous chapter. When He he called her to Himself to follow the footsteps of the flock, Verse 8, follow the footsteps of the flock and feed your little goats beside the shepherd's tents. He's declaring His glory to draw her, to attract her, so that she might find in Him all that she needs, all that she could possibly desire to satisfy the deepest longings of her soul. It is His gracious intent. And you see this especially in John's Gospel. John's Gospel which describes the Word who was with God from the beginning, who was God, who is God, who, who came in human flesh and tabernacled among us filled with grace and truth as a reservoir of all that we could possibly need. Christ comes 
as the one who is filled with grace and truth. And so in that Gospel of John, we find John recounting in particular time and time again the way Jesus addresses the multitudes. He says, I am the bread of life. He doesn't need bread. If he were hungry, as the psalm says, he wouldn't come to us. He doesn't need anything. He doesn't need us to eat his bread. There's nothing that he needs from us. Rather, he has come to give. He has come to supply. We are starving. We're dying in our sin and in our emptiness. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of God. I am the bread from heaven like the manna that sustained Israel in the wilderness day after day. I am the bread of life. He commends Himself. I am the light of the world. The people that has been filled with darkness and despair has seen a great light. He says, I am the light of the world. No longer walk in darkness and gloom and depression and blindness. I am what you need. I'm the light of the world. He says, I am the door. I am the door of the sheepfold. You've been excluded. You've been shut out of the presence of God. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were cast out of the garden and the sword, the flaming sword of God's justice was placed at the entrance of the garden and mankind was excluded and cast out and cut off and alienated from the life of God. But Jesus Christ says, I am the door. If you would enter through Me, you will find life and salvation you will be reconciled to God. I am the door, the doorway, the veil into the Holy of Holies, even His flesh which was torn asunder to make that new and living way into the presence of God. He says, I am the Good Shepherd. I am the Good Shepherd. All we like sheep have gone astray, each one pursuing his own agenda, but He says, I am the Good Shepherd. I lay down My life for the sheep. He's not only a good shepherd, He's the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, but He's the good shepherd and He supplies us with all that we need. I shall not want. He leads us through life day by day by still waters into green pastures. He sovereignly leads and guides us living in us. Speaking a word behind us, this is the way, walk in it, leading us in righteous paths for His own name's sake. I am the Good Shepherd. Goodness and mercy following us all the days. I mean, you can go to Psalm 23. I am the Good Shepherd. He says, I am the true vine. If you abide in Me, He says, I will give you Life and nourishment, I will make you fruitful. I will enable you to bear abundant fruit, not thorns and thistles and dirty, rotten fruit of ungodliness and wickedness and perversion. I will enable you to bear the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, so on and so forth. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. And my friends, Jesus Christ commends Himself in order that He might reveal the character of God to humanity. John 1 says, no one has seen God at any time. But the Son of God in the bosom of the Father, He has revealed Him. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4-6 that it is in the face of Jesus Christ that we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Hebrews 1, 1 1-3 
tells us that God has revealed Himself in a, a whole host of ways in the Old Testament, but now, finally, He has revealed Himself in His Son. The brightness of His glory. The express image of His person. Jesus says, if you've seen Me, you've seen the Father. And so, whenever we find the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's in John's Gospel, whether it's in the Song of Solomon, when we find Him saying, I am this, I am that, understand what He's saying is, look at Me and see the Father. See the character of the God that no man has seen at any time. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. So when you hear this, don't question His motives. Don't question His intent in declaring these things and commending Himself to you. He is doing it for your good, for my good. It's a gracious intent. Secondly, we see in these words His humility. His humility. The infinite humility and condescension of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. This is the eternal God. The eternally begotten Son of God. Equal with the Father in power and glory. The One that, uh, of whom Paul says in Colossians 1, he says, in Him the entire universe is held together. This is the one that Paul says in Hebrews chapter 1 that he upholds all things in this created universe by the word of his power. This is the one who, who can say to Nicodemus at the selfsame time that he's interacting with Nicodemus in his incarnate human flesh, talking to Nicodemus there in John chapter 3, he can speak of himself as the Son of Man who is in heaven. If your Bible doesn't have that phrase, we can offer you a Bible that has all the verses of the Bible. That's an important phrase. That's a very important phrase because there Jesus says, I am the Son of Man, yes, but I'm also in heaven. I am omnipresent. Indeed, all things live and move and have their being in me. So as God, I'm just as present in heaven itself while I'm interacting with Nicodemus in the flesh. Jesus Christ is the eternal God. He is the sovereign Creator. He is infinite and transcendent above all that He has created. And my friends, it's so important for us to understand this when we come to a passage like this. Because as I said in the first point, we might be tempted to say, well, He's commending Himself. You know, there are these beautiful flowers. And Jesus is saying, by way of metaphor, obviously, I'm, I'm like these flowers. I am these flowers. I, you, know, you can look at these beautiful flowers and, and that's what I am for you. And we think, well, again, you know, is, he, is He being proud? Is He lifting Himself up, my friends, for Jesus to compare Himself to any aspect of this creation is infinite condescension. Infinite humility. The fact that the eternal God, the sovereign Creator, infinitely transcendent over roses and lilies that grow out of the dirt, for Him to commend Himself by comparing Himself to these aspects of His creation, my friends, is infinite humility. And once again, this 
reflects the character of God as it has been revealed, I would say, uniquely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, But there's something of this in all of God's covenant dealings with His people. Psalm 113, verses 4 and following. Uh, It says this, The Lord is high above all nations, His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? I mean, for Him to compare Himself to anything, who is like the Lord our God? A rose, a lily, are you kidding me? They don't come close. Nothing compared to the beauty and glory and delightfulness of God and of God in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is like the Lord our God? Who dwells on high? Who humbles Himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth? He raises the poor out of the dust and lifts the needy out of the ash heap that He may seat Him with princes. Do you see what it's saying here? It's telling us that He has humbled Himself low. That He has come down. Even to make a covenant with mankind. Our confession says infinite condescension. Infinite lowering of Himself to have a relationship of any kind with the creature. But in particular, in the covenant of grace, to have that relationship by way of the incarnation. God becoming man. A human body made of the dust, a human soul, limited. Not, not sinful, but limited. His, his mind, His will, his, his affection. Sinless and yet finite. For Him to take upon Himself a human nature with the body and soul, infinite condescension. Why did He do it? To raise the poor out of the dust. Why did He become poor? so that we who are poor might become rich with heavenly treasure for all eternity. That far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. But notice that the humility that is expressed in these Gospel truths, is, it's striking. Verse 6 of that psalm that I just read, Psalm 113, who humbles Himself to behold the things that are in the heavens and in the earth. It is an infinite condescension not only for God to behold what's taking place down here on the earth, but for God to behold what is happening in the highest heavens. The highest, the the pinnacle of His created world and of His universe that He has made. For Him to behold and dwell there and, and see what's happening and interact and have relationship with the glorified saints and with the perfect elect angels... For Him to do that is humility. It's humility. It's condescension. Because heaven is created. And the beings there are created. And so for God to dwell there and behold those things and interact with those individuals is humility. Think about that. Think about how great and majestic and transcendent God is for that to be true. Now imagine... He's not just in heaven, He's come here to Southfield, Michigan. And He's in this building and in and through His Holy Spirit, He is present in the praises of His people. He's present in the hearts of sinners saved by grace like you and like me. The humility. What an amazing thing. And if God can do that through Christ, what's my excuse? What's your excuse for being proud? For being puffed up? for refusing to interact with certain people, for saying talk to the hand, for refusing to receive somebody's apology and forgive them. 
What right do we have if God can condescend to come to the earth and dwell here and now in the midst of us, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our defilement, and just in the midst of our creaturely finiteness? I mean, God is so far above us. You have more in common with a cockroach than God has in common with you. God has humbled Himself to come into our midst. How can we maintain a spirit of pride and of resentment and bitterness and remain puffed up and high-minded toward others? I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Interesting, uh, we see here According to some commentators, I always need to be careful with the Spurgeonutics, but um, you know, verse 1 is arguably speaking of Christ as the rose of Sharon. Sharon being the plain along the western Mediterranean coast and uh, the lily of the valleys. The valleys obviously being, being those lower portions of the landscape in that area. We'll see something about that in a moment. But, but you see something of, of Christ being high uh, in, in that particular area of the promised land, the plains would have been of higher elevation. And you see something of Him condescending and coming low, the lily of the valleys. We see there His humility. Thirdly, His delightfulness. His delightfulness. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. We've seen many of the declarations Jesus has made concerning Himself. He says He's the bread of life. He says that He's the light of the world, that uh, He's the, the good shepherd, the true vine. And in so many of these declarations, He's emphasizing Himself to be a Savior and a source of life, a source of the necessary, basic things that we need for life. But here we find him saying something that goes far beyond that. He says, I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. A rose and a lily do not represent the basic necessities of life. You don't need a rose or a lily in order to sustain your life. You don't need these things. These things are not required like shelter and clothing and bread and water and light. No, these are things that represent the joy of life, the well-being of life, uh, the, the delightful, fragrant, beautiful aspects of life. Things that you could live without them, but what kind of life would it be? He says, I am the rose and I am the lily. I am something beautiful to cheer you up when you're discouraged. I am light, not just in the sense of light so that you can, you know, you turn your headlights on so you can, you know, drive home from work in the dark, but light, joy. Oftentimes in the wintertime in Michigan, people struggle with depression because there's not as much sunlight. And, you know, as, as I always recommend, take your vitamin D. But still, light, we need light, not just for the necessity of life, but we need light so that we can function in the way God has called us to do as joyful, cheerful, delightful people. Jesus says, I am your delightfulness. I will give you the beauty and the fragrance, the things that make life worth 
living. It's not just a survival that Jesus gives us, in other words. The Christian life is not just merely shuffling along, surviving. It is a joyful life. It is the joy of the Lord that is our strength. And when, even when we encounter weakness and trials and troubles, the fact that He is in those trials and troubles with us, strengthening us, we can lean on Him, we have joy. And we have set before us joy unspeakable and full of glory in the life to come when we will see Him face to face. There are many who say, according to Psalm 4, who will show us any good? But for the Christian, we can say, we have the rose, we have the lily, we have the light and the brightness and the joyfulness and the cheerfulness of the Lord Jesus Christ shining His face upon us. He says, I am your delight. I am your joy. We sang about it in Psalm 45, which is something of a summary, an abbreviated version of the Song of Solomon. The psalmist says, My heart is overflowing with a good theme. I recite my composition concerning the King. My friends, in a fallen, dark, discouraging world where, especially in our own day, things just seem to get worse and worse and worse. If you follow the news, sometimes it can be discouraging. You follow social media, you're being burdened with one thing after the next. And you recall the Apostle Paul says that in order to overcome these things and have the peace of God that passes all understanding to guard our hearts and minds, we need to be thinking about whatever things are true. We need to be thinking about whatever things are noble. Whatever things are just, whatever things are pure and lovely and of good report, if there is any virtue, if there is anything praiseworthy, he says, meditate on these things. Now, there are a variety of things that we can put in that category, but none is so filled with delight. None gives us greater joy and peace than when we think upon the Lord Jesus Christ, who is more true and faithful and genuine and sincere who is more pure and lovely and of good report who has greater virtue and power and strength who is more praiseworthy in every aspect of his person and his work and so the psalmist here is taking Paul's advice you know um, anachronistically speaking and he is meditating upon this noble theme of the king And verse 2, he says, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. His, His beauty, His appearance. When you read the New Testament, you don't have in in the text of Scripture, obviously, you don't have a physical representation of Christ. You don't have a picture. We don't know what He looked like. We're waiting for that beautiful glimpse of Him for all eternity in heaven. But you do have a picture of His character. You know more about Him than you would if all you had was a picture. This is the lie of these visual worship aids that people bring into the life of the church. We have what we need to see Him. To see Him with clarity. His character. His compassion. His holiness. His obedience. His zeal for the house of God, His mercy, His grace, His justice and righteousness, His wisdom, His prudence and everything. 
that we need to, to put into our minds, to conceive in our minds a picture of His character, of His beauty, of the perfect proportion of every attribute that we would desire biblically for a human being to have. He's got it all. He's fairer than the sons of men. The sons of Adam. Grace is poured upon His lips. We hear Him speaking. If you just had a picture and that's it, but we have His words. We have them throughout the Psalms. We have them in the Song of Solomon. We have them in the Gospel. We have them from Genesis to Revelation in one sense. It's the Word of Christ and we have it. We can be filled with it. And we can partake of the beautiful, delightful character of His words, His lips. More could be said. Psalm 45 gives us something to perhaps a runway to launch off in that direction. But the Lord Jesus Christ is the lily and the rose. And we're told in the Scriptures that those who are true believers, they love Him. Though they have not seen Him, Peter says, yet they love Him. Though they have not seen Him, yet to them He is precious. Do you need delight in your life? It's interesting, even the word delight has the word light in it. And you can look at that etymologically and you can see that that's exactly what it's saying. Here you are in the dark days of a Michigan winter. Do you need to be illuminated with the delightfulness of Jesus Christ? Do you need to take hold of that rose and pick it and smell the aroma of Christ and His righteousness and His perfection and all that He said to you, all that He's done for you, all that He is to you, and all that He has promised moving forward. Take that rose. Take that lily. Again, it's not just your survival. It's not just that you can survive and make it through the judgment and get to heaven. Jesus Christ says, I want to give you joyfulness and peace and cheerfulness all along the way to heaven. When you're in your sickbed, when you're at the hospital, people don't send you roses to help you get better. Okay? Jesus is more than your great physician. He's also sending you these roses these promises, these lilies to encourage you. And he says, if you're struggling, take your vitamin D, but also, in addition to that, if that's necessary, read, meditate on my promises and find a spiritual source of joy to illuminate and enlighten your life. Fourthly, his variety. We've seen his gracious intent, his humility, His delightfulness. Fourthly, His variety. He's not just the rose, and He's not just the lily, but He's the rose and the lily. The best of both worlds, you could say. He's got everything. You'll never be bored with Christ. If you think you're going to go to heaven and, oh, it's just eventually going to become humdrum. and No, it'll never be boring. It will always be fresh because Christ is a rose. Christ is the lily. And as the author to the Hebrews says, You know, if time would permit, I'm sure he would go on and tell us infinite other illustrations and revelations of his glory and his beauty and his delightfulness. But here he gives us two to show the variety. When we think of the rose, we we think of the rose as the queen of the flowers. 
we think of this unrivaled rose, the, the majestic rose. Typically, if, if there's some occasion and you want to bring flowers or, or donate flowers or give flowers to someone, you can't go wrong with the rose. It's, it's just the best of the best. The unrivaled majesty of the rose, the queen of the flowers. And when we think of the lily, we think of that intimate purity of the lily. That graceful, delicate, beautiful purity of the lily. I say intimate purity because Psalm 45 is set to the tune of the lilies. This is a psalm of love, it says, set to the tune of the lilies. So biblically speaking, we're to associate the lily with this intimate relationship between Christ and His church. There's an intimate purity of this spiritual marriage that is represented by the lily. My friends, you see in the rose and the lily just such an amazing variety. Now again, uh, if, if we were to look at some of the authors out there, uh, they would point out that Christ is the, the rose, which is typically conceived of as red, and the lily, which is typically conceived of as white, and that that aligns with what is elsewhere said in this book, that He is white and ruddy. But we're not going to go there. Suffice to say, we see in the majesty of the rose and in the purity of the lily something of the beauty of holiness that is in God and that is in Christ. The beauty of holiness. Holiness has two or perhaps even we could say three aspects. When we think of biblical holiness, children, we're thinking of at least two things We'll add a third to the mix as well. But when we think of holiness, we're thinking of God's greatness. That He is high above all of His creation. Even the sinless angels, though they're not separated by God due to any sin, in Isaiah chapter 6, the sinless angels say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. His greatness. His superiority. The, the distinction between the creature and the Creator, that is a, really the fundamental aspect of God's holiness. Secondly, there is His purity. And you see how this fits in with the rose and the lily. You've got that majestic rose, the queen of the flowers, and we see God as the King of kings, and Christ as God is above all things, preeminent in all things, but also the lily in its purity, in its spotless perfection. God, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. He's in a category all by Himself as free from all sin. There is no unrighteousness in Him, nor was deceit found in His mouth. Perfect in every way. The beauty of holiness. Sin makes things ugly. Sin makes us ugly. Sin makes the world ugly. Sin makes societies ugly. Sin makes everything ugly. It, it, it saps the delightfulness and beauty and fragrance out of everything. There's, there's no fragrance in sin but that which utterly stinks literally to high heaven. But God Himself is great and transcendent. He is pure and holy and Christ as God reflects that, even in human flesh. 
I said there was a third aspect of holiness, and that is the relational aspect. That God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are set apart from all creation and set apart from all sin unto themselves in this holy communion of love. It's not just a a set apart, not just a negative, but a positive unto themselves. God unto Himself within the triune Godhead. And, And that's crucial to understand true holiness. Because if there never had been a creation or sin to be distinct from, God would still be holy because He is positively holy because the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are, are infinitely and eternally in a positive communion of love with one another. Love and relationship. And you see the beauty of holiness reflected in the Gospel when Jesus, our great High Priest, our rose and our lily, intercedes for us in John 17, verse 20. He says, I do not pray for these alone, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in Me through their Word, that they all may be one, as You, Father, are in Me and I in You, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that You sent Me. So notice, God, the triune God through Christ, has brought His people into a fellowship with Himself. Has united them to Himself. We're told, and the glory which You gave Me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me. So Jesus is the mediator, the bridge that unites and reconciles God and man and God's people through their union with Christ are brought into a fellowship with the triune God. Into this holy fellowship. Uh, We're told um, that they may be made perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me. And have loved them. Here's the the holiness. We're saying this holy fellowship of love. You have loved them as you have loved me. You have loved them as you have loved me. The end of verse 24. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. Verse 26. The love with which you loved me. That it may be in them and I in them. So Christ is filled with the beauty of holiness in all varieties, in all three of those aspects, and brings us in to experience it ourselves, as we'll see tonight. Fifthly, His excellence. I am the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. We see His excellence. It's it's not just any rose. It's the rose of Sharon. And, And we know the author of this book, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, King Solomon himself was an expert in God's world, in science, in terms of the knowledge they had in that day of classifying different animals and plants. And he was an expert in in philosophy and wisdom and, and biblical doctrine and ethics. He was the wisest man on the face of the earth at that time. And his wisdom extended even to classifying various aspects of God's creation. And so he doesn't just 
present Christ as declaring, I am the rose, I am the lily, but he says, I am the rose of Sharon, a particular rose. A a rose that is highlighted throughout the Scriptures as being the best kind of rose, the most fruitful, the most glorious. It's mentioned multiple times in the Scriptures. Uh, For instance, Isaiah 33, verse 9, when it talks about God bringing judgment upon His people and... uh, the, the language here, you'll, we don't have time to get into it too much, but you see the sort of agricultural language here of God's judgment. It says, the earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon, which was known for the fertile ground that produced the cedars of Lebanon, which were used for the temple. The earth mourns and languishes. Lebanon is shamed and shriveled. Sharon which was known for its fruitfulness, this plain on the western Mediterranean sea coast, Sharon is like a wilderness, and Bashan and Carmel shake off their fruits. Then if you go to chapter 35, verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah, where he then speaks of the restoration that would come to the judgment that was just described there in symbolic form. Isaiah 35, 1 and 2, the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them. And this is the wilderness that had been created in Sharon, the fruitful plain that was turned into a wilderness, and in Lebanon, that fruitful plot of land that was turned into a wasteland. And the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. That's saying that Sharon, which was known for its fruitfulness, known for its roses, would be a wasteland, a desert, uh, a wilderness. But then, when God brought restoration, it would be comparable to Sharon being restored and bringing forth that abundant fruitfulness. And what was it known for more than, in this case, the rose? It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing, the glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. So you see Lebanon coming back into play. The excellence of Carmel and Sharon. You see that, the excellence. And what is the excellence of Sharon? It is the rose of Sharon blossoming. When God desires to describe restoration and redemption in the life of His people, when He wants to describe the excellence of His salvation in Christ, how does He do it? The excellence of Sharon blossoming as the rose. Jesus Christ is not just delightful. He's not just better than all of these other competitors. He is the best of the best. He is the most excellent. He is the superlative. Best of the best. The rose of Sharon. The lily of the valleys. This lowland which was saturated with moisture from the surrounding hills and mountains. It would all flow down into the valley. And it would be saturated. There are certain parts perhaps in, in your backyard where you try to plant you know, different uh, flowers or you have a garden trying to plant vegetables or whatever. And certain parts of your backyard get more sunlight than others. Certain portions get more moisture and rainfall than others. In the promised land, nowhere would have gotten more moisture. No place would have gotten more moisture than in these valleys. 
And, and Jesus is saying here, I am the most excellent of the lilies. I am those lilies that are robust and beautiful and strong and, and enduring in the valleys that are filled with water. My friends, God has given us the best of the best for our salvation. In His Gospel, He gives us this indescribable gift that is far more excellent than anything else we could imagine. For God so loved the world. What a, what a beautiful word. Two letters, and yet it encapsulates the glory of the Gospel so. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. He has given so much. Behold what manner of love the Father has given unto us. Literally this otherworldly, cosmic love. He has given to us His Son and adopted us as sons and daughters. The excellence, the glory of the Gospel. Paul looked at everything in his life all of the religious works and privileges that he'd had through his life. He looked at all of his own works. He looked at everything that could possibly stand up to compete. And he said, I count it all rubbish. I count it all as nothing. I count all of these things, these things that may tempt me to envy the wicked or to envy another person in my life or whatever it is, these things that may be difficult to find that I think I need in this life, in this world. Maybe things that I do have that I'm tempted to idolize and boast in. He says, I count it all rubbish. I count it as loss. I put it in the debit column for the excellency of knowing Jesus Christ and being found in Him, His excellence, His uniqueness. I'm gonna, I'm gonna uh, just say this sixth point very quickly so I can finish with number seven. His uniqueness. Notice, it's not one rose or lily among many. It's the rose. It's the rose. And I think here what Solomon is intending in this passage is. The, the species of rose. In other words, it's not just one rose or one lily in the valley. It, it's, it's a whole species that, that fill the valley. And we could say, there's the lily of the valley or there's the rose of Sharon. But what we mean is it's covering the landscape. But the point is it's, it's just one. It's the rose of Sharon. The lily of the valleys. That one species, there's a particularity. There's a definite article. And this is the same way Jesus speaks throughout John's Gospel, I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not just that He's excellent and amazing, but He's the only one. He's the only one. He's not just all we need or all we could desire. He's all we've got. He's the only one who gives us reconciliation with God. There are Lord's many and God's many in heaven and earth, Paul says, but we have one God, even the Father, and one Lord, Jesus Christ. One name under heaven. One mediator between God and man. The man, Christ Jesus. Who is like the Lord Jesus Christ. We see in the book of Revelation, and we see it today if we had time 
especially in, in recent weeks. Who is like the beast? The world glories in its religious figures, in these larger-than-life figures, in their life and in their death, and makes much of them and glorifies them. Who is like the beast? My friends, the beast, when he comes to die, is just as dead as a doornail as you or I are going to be. Everyone is like the beast. Everyone is like the beast. Everybody, you look at Pope Ratzinger or Benedict or however you want to put that, who is like him? Everybody's like him. We're all going to be in six feet under. We're all going to be in the casket. We're all going to die. The world exalts and glorifies its popes and its presidents and its figures far and wide. But we can say, who is like the Lord our God? Glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders. Who is like the Lord our God who is exalted and yet who humbles Himself to behold things in heaven and things on the earth? Who is like the Lord? Jesus Christ is unique. And finally, His availability is set forth here. We close with this. His availability. He is freely available. Just as surely in Solomon's day as you could travel to the plain of Sharon and see a landscape filled with roses far as the eye can see and you could go and it wasn't in a museum or some special metro park where you have to pay 20 bucks. No, there's no, there's no fence. There's no nothing keeping you, hindering you from going into that field and plucking that rose of Sharon for yourself. Same with the lily of the valleys. You go into those valleys and you just open wide your eyes, feast your eyes on lilies as far as the eye can see. This lily of the valleys is available. It's freely available to everyone, to anyone. There's more of these lilies than there are people to pluck them. The infinite mercy and merit of Christ, the infinite saving value of His atonement, my friends, there is more saving power in Christ than there are sinners to make use of it. Sad to say, uh, but even if everyone who ever lived believed on Christ, he would still have an infinite merit, infinite saving power. But there's always more in Christ than sinners are willing to take hold of. He's freely available. Don't think that you have to do something other than get to the valley. Get to the plain of Sharon. Other than that, other than fleeing to Christ, that's all you need to do. Go to Him. Come to Him, He says. Come to Me. All you who are weary and heavy laden. Not just that you need Me for survival and salvation. As important as that is, but I'll give you joy. I'll give you rest for your soul. I'll give you cheerfulness. Even in a Michigan winter, I'll give you delightfulness. He is freely available to everyone who desires Him. If you desire Him, if you believe on Him, come to Him and receive the water of life. Receive the bread of life. Receive this Good Shepherd as your own. He's available, my friends, to lost and dying sinners. The Bible says that God commands everyone everywhere to repent. 
that He commands this Gospel, the Kingdom, to be preached to every creature. Come to the plain. Come to the valley. Come to Jesus Christ. Everyone who thirsts. Isaiah 55 is is clear and explicit. Ho! Everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who have no money, these roses are free. These lilies are without cost. He says, come, using a different analogy, buy and eat. Buy wine and milk without money and without price. Christ has purchased it. All you need to do is take it by faith. Why do you spend your money for what is not bread and your wages for what does not satisfy? Let your soul delight itself in abundance. He says, moving further down in the text, seek the Lord, verse 6, while He may be found. There's coming a day when you will not be able to access this rose or this lily or this Savior. I don't know when that day is. It could be today. It could be tomorrow. It could be next week. It seems today people are dropping like flies. I don't know. But you'd better get a hold of this rose and this lily today. Seek Him while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and He will have mercy on him and to our God for He will abundantly pardon can imagine somebody walking through the fields and seeing these flowers and somebody says, why don't you grab some of those flowers for yourself? And they say, oh no, I can't. I'm carrying this, 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 these other things. I've got these boxes in my head or I'm carrying these items and I can't, I don't have room to carry. I don't have room to take the rose and the lily. My friends forsake every alternative, count it as loss, throw it overboard, cast it away, and feast your eyes, and take upon your hands, and smell in your nostrils the rose of Sharon and the lily of the valleys. Let's pray. Gracious God, we pray that You would shine the light of Your countenance upon us. And open our eyes that we may behold the wondrous things of Your law. Especially He who is the end of that law unto righteousness for all who believe. Even Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.